0: Welcome to The Boiling Frog, where we contemplate the intersection of politics, economics, psychology, history, and science. I'm Mark Olbert. And I'm Seth Rosenblatt. Seth, I'd like to build on something we explored a while ago. In our 11th podcast, Brain Frog, we asked whether America was getting dumber and examined some social psychological phenomena related to that question.
1: Yeah, that was a favorite of mine. (laughs) And I remember we discussed something called the Dunning-Kruger effect, which is a cognitive bias where people with a low ability at a task overestimate their ability to handle that task.
0: On some level, that's a discussion about expertise. How do we acquire expertise? How do people view others' expertise? And particularly, why do we assume people with expertise or experience in one area somehow magically have that same gift in another area? All of which I think are worthy topics in their own right.
1: Yes, this is also related to another phenomenon, which is almost a paradox within businesses. It's something called the Peter Principle. I'm sure you've heard of that, right? It postulates that people in a hierarchy tend to rise to, quote, a level of respective incompetence.
0: (laughs) In other words, you're promoted until you're no longer worthy of promotion, which kind of means we're all likely incompetent, or at least not particularly competent in whatever our current job happens to be.
1: Right. Now, admittedly, this is a bit of an oversimplification and an exaggeration, but it's useful to think about when we discuss expertise in ourselves and in others. So let's talk about what makes an expert. It's first important to remind our listeners that expertise is not the same as intelligence. Intelligence is the way information is processed in our brain and how fast it's processed, those sorts of things. Expertise, on the other hand, requires study, practice, and subject matter comprehension.
0: Intelligence likely evolved in part because it lets us do a better job at finding solutions to immediate problems, which isn't necessarily the same thing as solving long-term problems within massively complex
1: communities. But there are many different types of intelligences and many different types of expertise as well. I think the business environment showcases this.
0: There are business leaders who are great visionaries and there are business leaders who are great operators. Both can be very intelligent in their own way, but they aren't necessarily substitutable.
1: Like the common division of labor in larger firms into, like, staff and line positions. Both are necessary, but they require different kinds of expertise and styles.
0: You also see the same kind of split in politics. Robert Kennedy famously said, Some men see things as they are and say why. I dream of things that never were and say why not.
1: Sure, but political systems would collapse without people who know how to get things done on a (laughs) day-to-day basis, too.
0: (laughs) That's absolutely true. You can visualize the difference between expertise and intelligence in a simple way. A human from 40,000 years ago could well be as smart as the smartest person alive today, but he or she would be far less capable than a dumber modern human who is well educated.
1: Expertise is all about deep knowledge and understanding of a particular topic and often an understanding so deep that someone gets it on a conceptual level And they can then use their intelligence and critical thinking skills in the context of having such expertise. I mean, that's a combination that's really powerful.
0: About 50 years ago, Herbert Simon and William Chase in the paper American Scientist wrote about the expertise involved in playing chess. They pointed out no one ever became a grandmaster chess player without at least a decade of intense focus on the game, spending anywhere from 10,000 to 50,000 hours staring at chess positions.
1: That reminds me of the more modern statement of that same notion, which came out of the book Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. He popularized what is known as the 10,000-hour rule, meaning that it takes 10,000 hours of intensive practice to achieve mastery in any complex skill.
0: Which, by the way, equates to about five years of a 40-hour week focusing on just that skill.
1: (laughs) It reminds me of a famous joke about the tourist walking in Manhattan, right, who's lost, and he goes up to a police officer and he asks, you know, how do I get to Carnegie Hall? And the police officer responds, practice.
0: (laughs) We all tend to underestimate the importance of study and training, particularly in things involving organizing groups of people. Eisenhower famously observed that, contrary to accepted wisdom, there was nothing magical about being an effective leader. It was the result of study, reflection, and lots of hard work.
1: Yeah, there's a related quote that's attributed to a number of athletes, right? Including, you know, Arnold Palmer, the great golfer, right? Supposedly someone went up to him and asked him, how he got so lucky in his shots. And he responded, you know, with a quote like, the more I practice, the luckier I get.
0: (laughs) Of course, the 10,000 hour metric isn't meant to be precise. It's just sort of uh, to illustrate the scope of the challenge. It doesn't take a lifetime to become an expert in something,
1: but it's not a casual endeavor either. And of course, there are other factors to becoming an expert, right? Including who your teachers are, your specific life experiences, the resources you have you know, and your innate ability and skills, which could affect the speed at which you can become an expert in something and the depth that you could gain, you know, of that expertise. That's why we
0: want our doctors to be both smart and go to medical school and our lawyers to be both smart and go to law school.
1: (laughs) Right. But despite that, I'm sure you wouldn't be surprised at uh, how much patients question the expertise of their doctor. (laughs) (laughs) No, I wouldn't. So in any case, that's what we wanted to focus in on this podcast, right? How we view expertise in ourselves and in others.
0: And it's why high-functioning communities, civilizations, are critical to maintaining widespread expertise. You have to have enough of an economic surplus to allow people to concentrate on learning. People living hand-to-mouth have great difficulty developing the kinds of expertise that we think of today.
1: But here's an interesting question, Mark. Are there some people who are good at almost everything? The term is a polymath, right? Are there true polymaths? Or sometimes we use the term, you know, a renaissance man. I mean, we throw around that term pretty loosely, and, and certainly there may be some people, and it must be some people, who learn things so fast that they shortcut those 10,000 hours per mastery, but I'm guessing they're probably few and far between. What do you think?
0: Uh, I think, as a practical matter, we can only evaluate if someone is a polymath in hindsight, which is probably why when the subject comes up, we tend to mention not current people, but people from history like Leibniz or Da Vinci or Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, folks like that. Personally, I suspect that we have fewer polymaths today simply because it was easier to master a subject decades or centuries ago when there was less to learn about any given topic because society was less complex.
1: That's a really good point. I mean, as the world gets more complex and there is just more and more knowledge, it's increasingly more difficult to be a deep expert in so many things. All right, so that's a good segue into talking about what happens when we become an expert in something. Fortunately for all of us and, and our communities, Many people do put in the time and the energy and focus to become an expert in something.
0: In fact, most everyone develops expertise in something. Humans seem to like to become experts. We're willing to expend the necessary effort because we see the benefits to both ourselves and others of being that go-to resource for people.
1: Yes, I mean, being an expert highlights us as individuals, and it can have psychological, social, and, and often economic value, of course.
0: Some people live their lives as an expert in a very specific area, are viewed as such by others, and also make a living off of it, and frankly, hopefully get some self-satisfaction and feel a sense of purpose from developing that expertise.
1: But because expertise has personal value, it's not surprising that individuals, once they recognize the value of being an expert, often seek to expand the areas they are recognized for for having expertise in, right? It could be a little addicting. And beyond the psychological
0: reasons, there could be an economic or philanthropic incentive for doing just that. Right. But there are at least
1: two steps to achieve such an expansion of your expertise. I mean, the first, maybe the obvious one, is you actually have to become an expert in the new area by putting in the required time and effort. But you also have
0: to get people to recognize that you've expanded your expertise into that new area.
1: Yeah. I mean, I guess you could become an expert silently, right, without leveraging it beyond your own personal purposes, (laughs) But to be recognized as an expert, as you say, you have to both amass the knowledge and skills and have your peers recognize you as having done so.
0: In many ways, it's kind of like a marketing exercise, just like for any product or service. Regardless of the actual value or benefits, good marketing can make people perceive added value.
1: But if you're only doing the second part, you know, the marketing, then you're taking a shortcut. You get recognized for knowledge and skill you may not actually have. And
0: often a person who is an expert in one area fools themselves that this expertise is easily transferable to some other area without doing all of that pesky extra work.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's right. I mean, that's a trap that many experts fall into, right? Once we become an expert in any given field, we then live a life where people defer to us. I mean, when that happens over enough time from enough people, that feeling becomes kind of embedded and it's all too easy to assume that, you know, it's normal, you know, for any endeavor we would undertake
0: in some way forgetting the tens of thousands of hours you put into
1: becoming an expert in your original field. And of course, there are even more examples of people who aren't experts in anything in particular, but decide they are right. This is the Dunning-Kruger effect we've mentioned a few times. It's certainly shown up in our politics and our society over the last few years as it relates to vaccine hesitancy, uh, climate change denial, you know, a whole bunch of other things. As
0: the old saying goes, a little knowledge can be a dangerous thing. Because while it makes us more skilled and educated, it may not make us enough more skilled and educated to actually have the expertise we think we've attained.
1: And we've discussed before how politicians have taken advantage of this psychology by reframing intellectualism as somehow bad or dangerous or at least out of touch.
0: Like denigrating experts such as Dr. Fauci or labeling universities as places for, quote, indoctrination, unquote, rather than for learning critical thinking and gaining expertise.
1: Given the investment cost of acquiring expertise, it's absurd to think someone could be an expert in many different fields at once, or as much of an expert as the folks who did put in that time and effort. I mean, no one is that smart and learned.
0: <laughs> My personal recognition of that forms what I call Albert's first law. No matter how smart you are, there are always at least a dozen people who can do everything you can do better than you
1: can. I suspect at least, right? <laughs> Education is hard work, right? And it's time-consuming. So there's not always a great incentive to put all of this work in for a potential payoff that may or may not come sometime in some unpredictable future.
0: The fact that acquiring expertise is expensive in many different ways creates a desire to cheat, to cut corners, or at least to fool oneself and others about it.
1: It's all too easy for us to delude ourselves into thinking any given level of expertise is relatively easy to acquire, because when we witness a true expert doing some task in a simple and straightforward manner, we don't see the tens of thousands of hours that they put in to learning how to, you know, whether it's play the bassoon or do heart surgery or even navigate the corridors of political power. (laughs) There's an
0: apocryphal story about an expert engineer who was brought out of retirement to solve a problem which had stumped everyone else. It took him five minutes and involved tightening a screw. He then billed the company $50,000. When they demanded more detail, he sent them this, tightening screw $1, knowing which screw to tighten (laughs) $49,999.
1: That's right. I mean, this relates to a concept we've brought up in previous podcasts, right? The notion of hindsight bias. Everything in hindsight always looks easier when done by someone who actually knows what they're doing.
0: Another example of this is something we both saw interacting with parents while on the school board. Because all parents have a personal and detailed experience of going to school, many tend to assume that they are experts in how school should be run, especially if they're heavily involved as a volunteer or something like that in the classroom.
1: Yes, the I mean, the analogy that I used for many years was that we've all had the experience of believing, right, that we could run a restaurant better because we all eat. But intellectually, we know it's very different to run a restaurant than to patronize one. Yet, we're all too tempted to believe that we better understand how to educate children because we all went to school. The problem is manifesting itself today in the so-called, like, parents' rights movement across this country where, although parents absolutely should have input into what public schools do, it seems like, in general, they're way overestimating their expertise in education. And this is leading to some very bad decisions, you know, things like book banning, for example.
0: It's also common for us to delude ourselves about the cost of acquiring expertise by assuming it's mostly innate or comes upon us miraculously. We recently saw an example of why this isn't reality when a retired army major sprang into action and took down a nightclub shooter with his bare hands, saving many lives. He had guts, like a storybook hero, but also something much more. Thousands of hours of training and practice and a large store of real-life combat experience to draw on. He didn't just use the force. (laughs) Guts alone weren't enough.
1: (laughs) Right. I mean, it's easier for any of us to imagine having the necessary guts and then gloss over the boring part, right, of practice, practice, and practice. So when we think of expertise in others, we tend to go to one or
0: another extreme. We might downplay that expertise and substitute our own. Or alternatively, we might expand it to areas beyond where that person is actually an expert. And often this approach will happen to align purely by accident, of course with what appears to be in our own economic, political, or psychological interest.
1: But when we denigrate real experts, right, we have to fill that vacuum, either with our own supposed expertise or, more likely, with a new surrogate expert whose point of view somehow, as you said, already pre-aligns with our own, you know, or otherwise serves our interest.
0: This happens in politics all the time. Attacking expertise, whether it's a climate scientist, an immunologist, or an economist, is a way of supplanting it in the minds of your supporters. Because you may not, as the politician, want them to be paying attention to that expert.
1: Yeah, and this is why we had senatorial candidate Herschel Walker, right? I mean, he was clearly a great athlete, Heisman Trophy winner, I think 12 years in the NFL, two times in the Pro Bowl. I mean, but after his retirement, you know, he hasn't been very successful at anything else, right, including business. But he served a political
0: purpose, even though he is clearly an exaggerated and, frankly, sadly, almost comical example of people assuming expertise that isn't actually there.
1: Which leads us to something I know we wanted to talk about, something that I think we can call expertise transference, because as it's hard to keep track just which areas someone has a real expertise in, it's much easier, albeit often far less accurate, to simply decide that someone is an expert rather than an expert in areas A and B, but not anything else. There is some
0: validity behind expertise transference, though. All other things being equal, why wouldn't I want to follow the advice of the smartest person in the room if no one is an actual expert? Besides, seeking an expert is, I suspect, in part seeking a parental figure to make some problem or hurt go away.
1: But as we've said, it's often inaccurate, and it's just a form of hero worship, actually. I mean, humans, by default, tend to judge expertise in the context of other things like likability, you know, admiration, or the ability to connect socially. And there's even empirical evidence that more physically attractive people, for example, tend to get listened to more than others, you know, regardless of their actual level of understanding.
0: This reminds me of stories about Steve Jobs and his, quote, reality distortion field, unquote. He clearly was an expert in a number of areas, but his success and personality turned him into a messianic-like leader. Supposedly, no matter what you believed, if you were in Jobs' presence, he would eventually convert you to his point of view. (laughs)
1: And it's possible even he believed that he was an expert at everything. I mean, which kind of gets you into cult leader territory a bit.
0: (laughs) Combating the tendency to defer to experts outside their area is so challenging that even scientists, a profession trained to think critically and always go to the data, succumb to it. History is full of examples of this. Rutherford, Lord Kelvin, thought the idea of atoms and nuclei was absurd, and his views, because of his actual expertise in thermodynamics, made it harder for the real-world data showing he was wrong to get accepted.
1: But we've been using the word expertise, I think, a bit too simply ourselves, right? It's not an on-off switch, right? Depending on the field, there are degrees of expertise, so it's really hard to understand the degree of anyone's expertise in any field, right? Particularly if you're not an expert yourself. But this
0: is another reason why we see expertise transference. It's much simpler to think of someone as an expert or not as an expert and not worry about pesky nuance, which is yet another example of how we tend to fall into the trap of simple binary choices or categorizations.
1: I mean, a real life example of this is when we say someone's a smart business person. I mean, there's a ton of context needed for that statement, right? What industries they're expert in, what functional expertise they have. What stage or form of business do they have experience in? I mean, it's impossible to keep track of everyone else's like micro expertise. So we simplify the situation and ignore context so as to confer expertise in a broader sense, even if it's not justified, despite the fact that there are very few people who have deep expertise in everything. I mean, even if we just focus on business alone.
0: Although some of us may be jack of all trades and master of none.
1: That's maybe, but even great financial success doesn't necessarily imply someone's an expert in all areas of business.
0: That's true. As we discussed in our podcast on risk, great wealth usually occurs to risk takers, and that is absolutely a skill, but it's not the same as being good in every aspect of business, which is something we'll get back to with a few examples in a minute.
1: But let's start with probably the most obvious category of expertise transference. That we accord many celebrities. Celebrities. Celebrities are right for hero worship in the first place, you know, because they are, by definition, engaging and connect well with at least a decent subset of society.
0: And our relationship with celebrities highlights a more general psychological phenomenon. We tend to seek relationships with people whom we admire, even if just based on their appearance, and then elevate those people into leadership roles, making secondary their actual objective level of expertise. It's why we have celebrity spokespeople for commercial products and why many of us pick politicians based on the famous, who would I like to have a beer with rule, rather than a more detailed study of expertise, philosophy, and other matters of substance.
1: But we do have to recognize there certainly are examples of celebrities, you know, actors or athletes, you know, who have put in the time to develop expertise in other fields. These could include, you know, like an Ashton Kutcher or Oprah Winfrey as it relates to business, or George Clooney or Angelina Jolie in Charitable Pursuits. And, you know, and even some actors and athletes that have become politicians and put the time to do so.
0: But in general, despite some of the high profile examples we've all seen, athletes, singers and actors who go into business don't tend to have a great track record. Many famously lose all of their money. That wouldn't happen if they actually had the expertise some of us think they do.
1: And there are some interesting case studies, though, of celebrities going into politics, you know, specifically. Ronald Reagan may be the most famous of those, right? as he also illustrates our earlier point that expertise is not binary. I mean, he certainly gained some political experience, right, as a speaker for Barry Goldwater. Then, of course, he was governor of California before he became president of the United States. But he was by no measure a studied and serious policy wonk. But again, many people like that about him.
0: I've read he was actually specifically recruited by the California GOP based on Nixon's dual losses, Nixon was arguably more expert than Kennedy and Pat Brown, but he didn't come across well on the new medium of TV. So the GOP decided to go with the flow and recruit an actor many people already knew well, meaning a good part of Reagan's appeal was a perceived amount of expertise transference from his earlier celebrity status.
1: And perhaps an even more dramatic example of that is Donald Trump, who was afforded expertise transference both from his supposed business experience and his celebrity But let's come back to him because we want to say more specifically about his business experience and the relevance of that to being president.
0: But before people think we're just picking on the right-hand side of the political spectrum, we have to bring up the same phenomena on the left. In 1985, there was a Farm Act bill before Congress, and Democrats invited Jane Fonda, Jessica Lange, and Sissy Spacek to testify, stars of three recent films about strong rural women battling adversity to speak about the plight of the American farmer. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> right. I mean, they didn't invite actually farmers. They invited actors who played farmers.
0: <laughs> also, in 2005, Ashley Judd advocated for the development of an HIV AIDS vaccine in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee hearing.
1: Right. And Martin Sheen, right, a man who played the president on TV, <laughs> testified <laughs> before the Senate Judiciary Committee, like on crime and terrorism, I think in favor of drug courts, you know, about a decade ago.
0: Many celebrities have been invited to speak before Congress, and clearly this is a ploy to get publicity and attention to the issue at hand. Only occasionally is it related to some expertise or perspective of that celebrity.
1: Yeah, and there certainly are examples of celebrities who do put in the time to understand those issues, and that's fine. But when I think of the extreme example, I think about people talking about Oprah Winfrey or Tom Hanks or The Rock, you know, running for president. I mean, (laughs) that would be as equally a poor idea as, you know, as it was for Donald Trump.
0: Um, I don't know if anything can be as poor of an idea as that.
1: (laughs) Okay, fair enough. (laughs) Okay, let's shift to talking about business people. And you can't bring up this subject without starting with Elon Musk.
0: He's clearly brilliant in so many ways, and a visionary. But that's not the same as being able to run one of the most interconnected businesses in the entire world, Twitter. Just because he can understand scientific complexity and what it takes to launch a business... That's not the same as understanding the social, political, and organizational complexity of running a mature and so socially embedded business like Twitter.
1: In fact, a few weeks ago, I heard a commentator on another podcast say that Elon Musk, in thinking he could run Twitter, may be a victim of the Dunning-Kruger effect.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's amazing that he or anyone else believes that just because a guy can brilliantly envision electric cars or space travel, that he can then successfully determine what content on social media will sustain and grow a business.
1: This reminds me of a concept called Dunbar's number. It's a suggested cognitive limit to the number of people with whom one can maintain stable social relationships, right? Some have proposed this number is between like 100 and 250. So think of the hubris of a single individual thinking he could be the arbiter of the behavior of literally millions of people on a social platform.
0: (laughs) It also goes back to our earlier discussion about how difficult it is to assess expertise in the context of business, because there are so many aspects to it. For example, there are real differences between starting a business and running one, particularly as it grows.
1: Yeah, and Elon Musk was certainly a visionary and, and took real risks. But it's not like he's running the day-to-day of all of these businesses. And if anything, it's probably his involvement that has hindered the operations of these businesses. You know, anyone who's tried to get a Tesla, for example, knows it's notoriously difficult, even though the car itself is pretty good. Mark
0: Zuckerberg is another example, I think, of someone who is great envisioning an idea and launching it. But he has really struggled in running a mature, complex business.
1: On the other hand, if we look at someone like Eric Schmidt, he's not an expert in visioning and starting businesses, but he has been extremely successful in running and expanding established businesses. He has a very different business expertise.
0: Seth, these examples strike me as being about transferring expertise from one business context to another business context. What about transferring expertise outside the business environment, like from business to politics?
1: As we discussed in our 12th podcast, you know, warts and all, most people underestimate how different government is from business. And we assume we should be able to run government like a business. We
0: won't go back and enumerate all of the differences, but we encourage our listeners to go listen to that podcast
1: to see why that's so. So the corollary to that discussion, which relates to our current topic, is that for some reason, we assume that successful business people should also be successful in government positions and perhaps even more successful than, you know, traditional politicians.
0: Which, among other things, ignores why the civil service was created. Communities had to ensure there are people in government who have the different kinds of expertise needed so that you could have a reasonably well-functioning government.
1: And as we mentioned in that earlier podcast, I mean, the track record of business people going into political service, at least on the national level, is a mixed one at best. I mean, our only president with an MBA like, you know, we both have was, you know, George W. Bush. And, you know, he reportedly had a pretty difficult time managing the complexities of the office. (laughs) Maybe he should have stuck to local office like us.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Also, our other business background presidents, Herbert Hoover, Warren Harding, Calvin Coolidge, Harry Truman, Jimmy Carter, and Donald Trump, are, to be blunt, a who's who of mixed political success.
1: But despite that, the American public seems to transfer expertise from the arena of business to the arena of politics. Interestingly, current and former business people are often
0: more successful in state and local political offices.
1: Fair enough. But Mark, you and I have to recognize our own biases here, right? As we are both business people who went into local political office. So we may (laughs) see it a different way.
0: Yes, that's true. But I think we can say we've observed it to be accurate. It's possible this is due to less political baggage being associated with these offices and including the smaller role of interest groups, the lesser influence of money and other things like that.
1: That's fair. Particularly at the local level, elected officials are freed. We were freed from much of the political dynamic because, you know, often we don't have this desire to seek higher office, right? It's not a poli- we're not political animals in that respect.
0: Let's talk about Donald Trump as a case study of a business person who took on the hardest political job in the world and who is also a great example of expertise, transference gone awry.
1: But I think for the purposes of this discussion, we need to ignore all of Trump's other shortcomings, right, including his sociopathy, his immorality, criminal activity, racism, sexism, all his other failings. Let's just assume he's a normal human being who just had the business experience that he had.
0: Yeah, Okay. although I got to say that takes some suspension of disbelief for me to do that. (laughs)
1: Yes. Okay, again, putting aside the moral stuff, let's assume that Trump was elected at least in part because of his perceived success in business.
0: In addition to the general challenges of transferring expertise from business to government, it's also important to understand Donald Trump was an atypical kind of businessman. He wasn't the CEO of a large public corporation, but rather the head of a private family business, although admittedly a rather large one.
1: That's a critical distinction, because a family business is even more different from government than a typical shareholder-owned corporation is. I mean, family businesses run in a much less complex environment.
0: In the case of Donald Trump, he got his position largely by birth, not by earning it. At a very young age, he became the boss and made all of the decisions. As boss, he didn't have to deal with many checks and balances, other than, of course, the scorecard of making a profit, which, frankly, every business faces.
1: Yes, family business owners, I mean, have no independent board of directors, if they even have one at all. They have few, if any, other shareholders, and they're usually private, which means they're not subject to public disclosure requirements.
0: The entire business is essentially a closed book, effectively run by one person, a person who is the, quote, king, unquote, of that business. This isn't necessarily a bad model, But having a lifetime of experience in running your own show makes you even less qualified for politics, particularly national politics, than the historical collection of business people turned politicians that we talked about before.
1: Why, it's not surprising then that he took this my way or the highway attitude toward every task and every negotiation. But this approach tends not to work in government because the role is both deliberately limited by design and also designed to include alternate perspectives. Right. And this clearly didn't work for him.
0: Despite how much power the president or any other particular official nominally has, politics is actually a team sport. A president's ability to get things done is predicated upon consensus and coalition building while having billions of eyes focused on your every move.
1: Which is why I think his experience distinguishes Donald Trump from someone like Mitt Romney, who had a more traditional business background, right? He ran fairly complex organizations with many stakeholders.
0: Romney, too, would have faced the general challenges of transferring expertise from business to government. But Romney illustrates how far Donald Trump's experience
1: was from the presidential job itself. The team dynamic of a family-owned business is also completely distinct from that of government. Employees of a family-owned business are probably working there in part because they want to work for the owner. Right. However, with the exception of top political appointees, most government employees are there for a different purpose altogether. They're less moved by the political philosophy of the person at the top. Right. As many stay through multiple administrations of different political parties.
0: In choosing to accept lower pay than they could generally make in the private sector, government employees are often there because they believe in the mission of their particular organization or its principles and the relevant
1: law and has been recently been illustrated, even the attorneys in the Justice Department don't really work for the president, right? Like a private attorney works for his or her boss. They are required to uphold the law of the Constitution, which can at times obligate them to oppose their boss's wishes.
0: So even if we assume Donald Trump had a successful business career, very little of that particular career would have caused him to understand, let alone appreciate, the dynamic that would make one successful as president.
1: Rather, it probably caused him to learn the opposite ultimately, his family business success prepared him to be more ineffective as a political leader.
0: It's an interesting example of how expertise in one arena can actually hinder developing expertise in a different one.
1: And as we observed, he wasn't really big on learning new things. (laughs) You know, so, so we could argue, and in fact, I think we did argue at the time that Donald Trump was fated to fail as a president, irrespective of his personality imperfections, you know, shall we say. It was his business and life experience that alone would have doomed him to be a completely ineffective president.
0: For the sake of our nation, let's hope he doesn't get the chance to fail again. Seth, let's try to share some overall takeaways about expertise and how it's both used and misused with our listeners.
1: But before anyone accuses us of being hypocrites or ignoring some sort of irony here, we need to remind ourselves and our listeners that you and I are not necessarily experts in all of these issues that we've talked about today (laughs) or in any of our previous podcasts, for that matter.
0: Uh, Well, I agree. But together, we do actually have some areas of deep expertise, both from our individual studies and work experiences, as well as our many, many hours in public service.
1: Sure. And this relates to why we started this podcast, right, which is that we think we have some perspective and expertise in seeing the connection among these issues of economics, psychology, politics, history, science, right, without necessarily being a deep expert in any one of those individual domains.
0: Well, I got to say, it does feel like we've made a substantial dent in that 10,000-hour requirement just discussing, preparing, and editing all these podcasts.
1: (laughs) Yeah, perhaps. Um, And we all need to remember that 10,000-hour rule, right? Because developing real expertise is hard work. It takes effort and focus, a lot of it. For yourself or
0: for others, don't assume anything is easy based on how you observe others doing it.
1: Right. Expertise needs to be earned, right? Not assumed. I think the next lesson is that we need to be careful about
0: assigning expertise to others based on traits that have nothing to do with actual knowledge and experience, like someone's appearance or their presentation style or any one of a number of other traits.
1: Yeah, I mean, a corollary to that is that we also need to be careful about accepting expertise transference and others based on their expertise in a different area, you know, or other factors like family relationships or other connections.
0: All of which reminds us, as we've said many times in multiple podcasts, We always have to think critically about how we view others and ourselves.
1: So wherever you choose to apply some of the takeaways we've discussed, please remember that distinguishing between real and faux expertise is critically important in politics in particular, because political leaders, particularly at the higher levels, can do great harm or great good depending on their level of real expertise.
0: I voted for people I wouldn't want to have over for dinner for a number of reasons, but that's okay because I'm not seeking a fun dinner companion. I'm looking for a good public decision maker and leader.
1: Well, another good place to end this podcast, you know, understanding who you want in a dinner companion, Mark.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Definitely a unique and important type of
1: expertise. Having been one of your guests, I can attest to that. Well, uh, thank you, Mark. And thanks to our listeners. Signing off, this is Seth. And Mark. Wishing you the gift of deep expertise for this holiday season.
0: (laughs) Thanks, everyone. See you next time. This podcast is copyright Mark Olbert and Seth Rosenblatt. All rights reserved. The Boiling Frog podcast is written, produced, and hosted by Mark Olbert and Seth Rosenblatt. Audio engineering and technical support provided by Caroline Olbert. Theme song composed by Benjamin Rosenblatt. Music arrangement and production by Mia Rosenblatt. For more information, resources, or to subscribe to this podcast, please visit our website at www.theboilingfrog.net